Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Teresa Fort, who is an Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. She conducts research in international trade and industrial organization. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your earlier papers um, from 2018, New Perspectives on the Decline of U.S. Manufacturing Employment. Um, I haven't looked at this type of data for a while, Teresa, so, <laughs> uh, I, so I want to understand this. So I was looking at the two charts in there. Uh, the first one is about employment, uh, and I see manufacturing employment was sort of going in an upward trend till about 1970 or so, and it seems to have um, stagnated at that point, that flatline for a while. Um, and then around, it looks like 1998, things rapidly fell down in terms of employment. Uh, but the chart underneath that is about real value added. And their non-manufacturing and manufacturing both show an upward trend. So how do you, how do you compute real value added? Oh, so that's a great question. Um, real value added means that we take away changes in, in prices, right? How prices grow over time. And in the manufacturing sector, we do it um, differentially across industries. So some industries might have prices falling more than others. And that could be part of what drives real output. And it turns out that in manufacturing, that is true. And, and when um, the BLS and other agencies try to come up with real output, so taking into account change, changes in price, they do something uh, sometimes called these hedonic price regressions, where we try to look at the attributes of the actual goods. And so something part of what's driving the growth in real value added in U.S. manufacturing is that um, things like semiconductors have gotten much, much better. They've gotten much higher quality. Think about the computer you used to use in the 70s versus the laptop you can use today or even just your watch, right? Those have gotten so much faster, they're able to do a lot more. And so when they talk about real value added, they mean in terms of not just um, the number of computers, but also how much can they do? What's their quality? How fast are they? And so when we say real, that's what we're we're taking into account. And it turns out that computer and electronics is one of the big sectors driving that real value added growth that you see in the bottom panel. Interestingly enough, it's also one of the sectors that has very rapidly declining employment. So rapidly declining employment, um, prices uh, have been declining as well in manufactured goods, especially computers and electronic goods. So uh, how do you how do you really look at quality adjustment to get to the real value add? It seems really complex. Well, I think for semiconductors, it was fairly straightforward in that 
um, they really know they can measure how fast they are. And so they know how many transistors they're on a chip. They know how much output, effective real output that chip is going to produce. And so I think for those, um, it's fairly straightforward. But even with that, there there is discussion and debate among economists as to what's the right deflator. And perhaps we're overstating our real value added growth somewhat. I think that um, it's actually much more complicated going forward because semiconductors, we, we can't really fit too many more transistors on there. And so the way that actually we're getting progress is um, in the design of the whole system. And that's a sector outside of manufacturing. And that is really hard to measure um, how is quality improving. Um, so as hard as it might have been in manufacturing, it's gotten much harder as we've um, started changing the way that those systems work and the entire system as opposed to just a chip to get output. There is also, I don't know much about this, Teresa, but there's also a question of obsolescence. So I would imagine um, computers we had in the 80s, early 90s are pretty useless now. We can't really use them for any application. So their their sort of value has gone gone to zero, <laughs> right? Uh, and so the quality adjustment is not necessarily incremental. Sometimes you know it, it's sort of adjusting from zero upward. Well, I think so. If I'm following your your point, you're saying that the the value of the old the older technology is is much lower now of course nobody's actually producing that lower technology so in that sense i think capturing those improvements is important for capturing how much kind of real or meaningful output has changed um you know there's a lot of interesting questions around how firms innovate when they come up with new models for example apple um, has new models but they still sell their old models because they don't sell the very old models um, but that's much more on a, how firms try to price discriminate and extract different valuations from different types of consumers. Um, yeah, so if I understand this correctly, uh, Teresa, so the unemployment, uh, the manufacturing employment, sorry, um, fell off. And uh, these the, the, the top chart is about the U.S., right? U.S. manufacturing employment? Yes. It really fell off. So, uh, but but the real value added has continued to increase. So, somebody else is making all the stuff outside the U.S. Is that the way to interpret it? Well, that's how some people interpret it. But the whole premise of this paper was to think about kind of the two most likely explanations for why U.S. manufacturing employment has declined, but then also to to face that with the reality that real value added has has risen. And so. There, there's two potential explanations. One is trade and one is technology. And so what we were trying to do here was examine what kind of data are out there to consider disentangling those two potential channels. And I think what we came away with from the paper is that it's very hard to disentangle those two channels because they're interrelated. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that new technologies have actually increased trade. So the ability to have CAD CAM drawings of your design has made it much easier for firms to break apart their production process and locate different stages in different physical locations, sometimes different locations within the United States, but sometimes in different countries. <coughs> and so that's a, a case where technology has led to trade. What's the root source? You might say the root source was the technology. Um, there's other cases in which trade might lead firms to adopt new technologies. So firms that are facing <coughs> excuse me, increased competition might uh, adopt new technologies in response to that. <coughs> you want to get some water? Oh, 
apologies. I'm just getting over a cold, and sometimes my uh, throat is still. Uh, no worries, no worries. Yeah, I, I can edit this out. So, so, so you 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 talked about technology and trade. Uh, so, if I understand this correctly, technology um, sort of allows manufacturing firms to reduce the human content in their products. So things can get automated, higher levels of automation. We increasingly have artificial intelligence. Um, and so there, there are less of a need for human employment. So that's one effect, right? The other effect is trade, which is um, uh, people think about China making uh, a lot of the manufactured goods and essentially shipping it to the US. Uh, and so if you look at these two effects, uh, you see it's sort of intermingled. Uh, I, I, so there's another figure that you have, uh, technology adoption and importing in US manufacturing sector, 1977-2012. So, so how do we find, um, what are the sort of the relative effects of these two, these two things? Well, I would hesitate to say that we can disentangle the relative effects. I think I would say that these, trade and technology go hand in hand. So the returns from adopting new technologies are higher when there's trade opportunities that firms have. So kind of an important message of our paper was, look, we don't think that we can tease apart these two channels. We think that they're both important and they're both going on. Um, you know, there is in 2001, what the my co-authors on this paper have written about, which is China joins the WTO. And as part of that, U.S. Congress grants permanent normal trade relations with China, which is essentially means they are granted MFM tariffs, which are pretty low. Um, and it's guaranteed that they will have those every year, whereas before China's WTO accession, those had to be renewed annually by Congress. And so there was always a bit of uncertainty about what the actual tariff level would be. And so they argue that part of the decline that we see in 2001 um, in, in that U.S. manufacturing employment is due to the fact that now there's less uncertainty for firms that want to invest in or import from China. And so um, you see a big surge in U.S. imports from China, and you see a con uh, at the same time a concurrent decline in U.S. manufacturing employment, and they show that that decline in manufacturing employment is relatively larger in those industries that faced greater reductions in the uncertainty. So I would say, if you really want to get at what's the cause, then you need to have some sort of variation in terms of which industries seem to be more treated or more affected by, let's say, a, a policy change. And so that was a policy change, and they trace out how it relates to um, subsequent employment changes. Yeah, so 2001 is sort of a break point, uh, China coming to WTO, as you say. So in the chart here, it's sort of kicking in uh, the imports from China at that point. Um, but but uh, there is a line here um, labeled plants buying computers. And that really <laughs> went to the stratosphere in 2001. So what's what's causing that? Well, I mean, so that is th this is manufacturing plants and their purchases of computers at their establishments. And what you see is that really big jump. And I think, you know, if we those of us who are old enough think back to, you know, uh, 2000, right, that's when we were just starting to use email and starting to get connected in that way. And so that's, I think, part of what allowed firms to take advantage of, let's say, China as a new low-wage location is the fact that we had these technologies that were making it much easier for firms to coordinate across distances and across countries. Yeah, so so plants buying computers, meaning plants in the U.S. buying computers, they're not necessarily buying it from China. They're buying computers to essentially set up. Correct, set up correct. Correct. And in fact, in another paper that I did before this, I looked at how firms and plants, U.S. manufacturing plants, uh, use of electronic networks to control and coordinate their shipments actually does relate to the likelihood that they will uh, source different manufacturing parts of their production from different U.S. locations and also from overseas. 
And so it does seem like that, you know, technology really can go hand in hand with the breaking apart or the fragmenting of the production process where firms might source certain elements or final assembly from low wage locations. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to tease out, but um, so let's say the WTO action did not happen. Um, the trade from China still sort of stagnant. Do you think we will still see that blue line? We will still see plants playing computers? Because we, we are uh, at that point sort of a break point in technology, right? Internet is really kicking in. Everybody's trying to use technology to, to get to higher productivity. And so it's not that they are buying computers for trade purposes, but they're just looking for higher productivity, I would think, right? Yeah, I think it is part of a, just a change in our production process, a change in how firms, you know, turn inputs into outputs is starting to use more technology. And I mean, just think about with COVID, we've seen a big change in terms of firms had a hard time with finding labor, reliable labor. So we've seen a lot of upgrading of new technologies and robot adoption. Also, you know, for a while, at least demand was suppressed. So it was less costly to try to change the way that they make their goods. So we've seen a lot of adoption. And adopting new technologies is hard and it creates uncertainty for firms. Um, so, you know, it doesn't just it doesn't just happen instantly, but it is represent a change in how they do things. And you're right that I, I think that would have been going on even if China had not joined the WTO. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are nervous about China's share of the manufacturing pie now. So so from a welfare perspective, do you think this is uh, let me just think about the U.S. for a minute. Uh, do you think this this was a good good thing for the U.S.? Well, I think that there were redistributional consequences. I think there are certain workers who lost jobs. And so you could think about textile and apparel workers in Virginia and the Carolinas. You could think about the furniture manufacturers there. And I think they did lose jobs uh, to China. But I think that's only part of the story. So another thing that happened, and you can see this in our figure, let's see, our last figure of the paper, yeah. I don't know if you're ready to go there, but um, even as these firms, these big manufacturing firms were shutting down manufacturing establishments, they were opening non-manufacturing establishments. In fact, they their non-manufacturing employment grew more than their decline in manufacturing employment. And so... What does this tell us? Well, there's stories about this. There's stories about furniture manufacturers who shifted from making the furniture in the United States, where it's pretty high cost, our labor is pretty expensive compared to a place like China, to making it in China, but then focusing on the design and the distribution and the retailing of those goods. And so we start to have a shift, right, of what U.S. firms are doing towards more knowledge-intensive uh, activities. Think about Apple. A really interesting question is, would we have iPhones today if China had not joined the WTO? And if we had had to make the iPhone in the United States, it would have been thousands and thousands of dollars. It's hard to think that consumers would have bought it as widely as they did. And so, you know, that American idea, that American design was able to be brought to the market in part thanks to the cheap labor in China. And so when you think about that, yes, there's some people who lost jobs in certain sectors, but it allowed the, those same U.S. firms to expand in other sectors. And to the extent that they're expanding in R&D and innovation and knowledge creation, that's actually what we think is one of the most important ingredients for growth. Right. Yeah, so the, the distribution effects, as you say, um, are highly varied. So... So the problem from a policy perspective is there are going to be winners and losers in this process. Uh, as the firms shift to sort of a different structural arrangement, the skills that they need in their employees are different. Um, and we're going through, as you know, we're going through something similar now. So we have robotics and artificial intelligence uh, going on. And... Um, it is, it is sort of a similar situation, right? Even the service sector employees that firms uh, have today may not be needed in the future. Um, they may be may need to be replaced by very few, I don't know, AI experts, data analysts, and, and so on. Um, 
So, so how does a country think about this from a policy perspective? Uh, how do they optimize this? I mean, I think we, we always know trade economists, we say, look, trade doesn't create or destroy jobs in the aggregate. It reallocates things. It changes the relative returns to different activities. And so what I think policymakers really need to focus on is how do we ensure that workers can reallocate without too much pain, right? And so I think that can be hard in some situations, like in that furniture industry, there were people who had been doing that job for generations and they had very special knowledge and maybe it was meaningful to them to have those jobs. And so that's that's a high cost. We wanna think about how can they transition into something that's not necessarily just you know, some very low wage um, uh, retail position. At the same time, I think we want to be very cautious about the idea that, well, we could use tariffs or we could block trade or block technology, right, in order to prevent people from losing jobs. Because I think over time, it just becomes harder and harder to keep those market forces from pushing towards the change that is kind of inherently being driven by the new technologies or trade. You can, I find it very helpful to think about trade as just one type of technology. So then I think what we have to focus on is why didn't workers reallocate in response to the China shock? So there's other big trade liberalizations. For example, Canada had a huge trade liberalization with the United States. And for Canada, that's very scary because the United States is much bigger than Canada. And in fact, the amount of imports that they ended up getting from the United States dwarfs what we ended what we got from China. Um, and you do see there's a, a very interesting paper on this, a recent paper on this using employee employer data, where you do see that workers in industries that faced more import competition from the United States as Canadian workers were much more likely to lose their job and to lose their job in that firm and in that industry that they worked in. But what's really interesting is in Canada, those guys ended up getting hired in other industries and in other firms. And so how come that reallocation worked? and it didn't work here. And same thing in Denmark. Denmark has had uh, big shocks, but it's really good at helping workers reallocate. And I think that's a really important question for policymakers is how do we ensure that US workers have the skill set where they can learn new skills in response to changes that we can't possibly predict. We don't know, right, what technology is gonna bring new jobs. We didn't know that there would be um, robotics engineers 10 years ago or I don't know, 15 years ago. And, and now there's a big demand for those. And so how do we sort of equip our workers to be able to respond and take advantage of the new opportunities that are presented, even as they um, those new opportunities destroy some older types of work? Yeah, one thing I was wondering about today is that when we uh, do sort of the returns on trade question, do we really fully internalize environmental and transportation costs? Uh, clearly, the, the private returns to firms are going to be high because of the labor differentials. But if we really fully internalize all the transportation and environmental costs, I wonder how, what, the, what the picture looks like. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. There's actually a recent paper that shows that we tend to we tend to have lower tariffs on goods that entail a lot of pollution in their production. And so what are we actually doing? We're trying to get other countries to make the high pollution um, goods so that we don't import the pollution, it stays over there. And so I do think that um, environmental issues and concerns really do call for global taxes, um, a global approach to to addressing the externality in, in economist language, right? So there's there's a private cost. The firm is going to consider the transportation cost of, of importing a good. It's not going to consider the additional CO2 that goes into the atmosphere or into the, or the pollution that goes into the ocean from its decision. And so you know, as an economist, I just think we should put a tat. We should estimate what we think the cost to society is of those externalities of that pollution, and we should just tax it, and it should just all be taxed around the world equally, so that we don't create distortions in terms of trying to effectively export our pollution. 
some sort of a global tax. It seems like there is a movement toward that in uh, in the Biden administration, right? Sort of globalizing taxes. Um, um, well, I would say that's, I think what you're referring to is a little bit different. I think what they're trying to do is have a uniform, a, a more uniform approach to taxing multinationals because multinationals certainly try to shift around where they do things. And I do think that's really important for the United States. We have a comparative advantage in knowledge creation and ideas. And it's very hard to know where does, where was the idea created. And so we've seen, for example, Apple claiming um, a lot of its R&D costs in Ireland. But Ireland, of course, is a very low tax place. So it's hard to know, was it really that it was the Irish institutions and workers that came up with those ideas? or? was some of that created by U.S. workers? And then how do we tax appropriately so that firms aren't just on paper shifting around where their costs and profits um, are incurred and made? Yeah, so I want to touch on the, the figure that you mentioned. Uh, change in real value added employment and import penetration across manufacturing industries. I don't think I quite understand this. So. Um, so import penetration, meaning more of the stuff is made in a foreign country? Yes, import penetration here, the way we've defined it, it's in that industry, what's the value of imports divided by total imports and total domestic production? Okay, so the, the white lines, uh, as they are higher, it means that we make, we meaning the U.S. Make, uh, makes less of it and foreign country makes more of it, right? Yes, so you can see textile products has a really high um, change, and this is the log change. So it's um, the change in import penetration from 2000 to 2007, um, if you're in panel B or uh, panel A is 77 to 2000. Um, so in that 2000-2007 in that period, you can see textiles has a really big increase in the share of imports relative to imports and domestic production. Yeah, so this is very intuitive. So the employment um, are, are negative when you have high import penetration. So that is uh, exactly what we found in other data too. Uh, and then value added as, as you described. Um, so computer and electronics have very high value added uh, this is sort of adjusting for the quality and, and all of that, right? So uh, what does this picture tell us? Uh, does it tell us anything about what the future is going to be and uh, any policy implications from it? So I find this figure pretty interesting in terms of the implications of that there might be different stories going on for different industries. And so what what jumps out at me is is what you said. First, you see that those industries that have high shares of import penetration often also have um, relatively bigger decreases in employment. Um, but for the most part, I mean, and we've sorted the figure based on value added, you can see that a lot of them also have big decreases in value added. And so that looks like there's both less workers and less output going on in the United States, even as we're importing more. But then what's interesting is at the bottom of the figure, you see computer and electronics, and it's also got relatively high import penetration and very high decrease in employment, but it's got a, the biggest by far change in real value added. And so that also is a sector where we know there's a ton of innovation going on. It's, it's a primary sector of, of patent growth in the United States over this period. And it's also a sector that has a lot of offshoring. So it does have firms locating some of their production overseas. And so I think this kind of, this figure kind of highlights different things happening. Some just import competition, reducing employment, reducing output, but some import competition may not actually be import competition. It may actually be domestic firms taking advantage of low wage production locations to bring even more of their ideas to the market. Yeah, I wondered, Teresa, uh, I don't know if this makes, so if I take a manufacturing process and typically what happens, I think in high technology and pharmaceuticals is that we tend to outsource the early steps, the less complex steps. As it get, gets closer and closer to the, the manufactured product, 
uh, things tend to get done here. Um, you know, maybe it's uh, the last assembly process um, and so on. And so how do we differentiate when you think about import penetration? How do we differentiate who does what in that in that metric? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And so actually using um, everything we've talked about so far has been using U.S. data, but I have a project that also uses Danish data where we have incredibly detailed information about what the firms import and what the firms produce in Denmark. And we also have a, a unique offshoring survey in which firms tell us whether or not they relocated their what they call think of as their core activity, the main stuff they do to another country. And the majority of offshores in the survey are relocating first to Eastern Europe, which is the closest low wage location for Danish firms, and then also to China. And what we see there is because we can look at this very detailed production and import data, we see that firms that report offshoring, relocating their primary activity, um, they start to import the same goods that they produce domestically. And these are extremely detailed product categories. These are not aggregate industries like computer electronics. No, I'm talking about the digital motor of a 450 wattage versus the 700 wattage. Um, I'm making up those wattages, but just to give you a sense of what the detail is. And so when these firms are both making and importing those goods, we expected that when they would relocate to a cheap location, they would stop producing domestically. And instead, what we see is it's those goods that they both produce and import that are the most resilient in terms of their domestic production. But what we also see is that over time, after they start importing a product, the unit value, so it's kind of our best measure of what their price is, the unit value of the domestically produced versions start to rise. They go up. By contrast, the unit values of the imported versions are low and, and kind of fall over time. And so what it looks to us like is that these firms are vertically differentiating in terms of quality, right? Or in terms of technological complexity. And then there's anecdotes to support that. So for example, Grunfos from publicly available data, we see has a manufacturing plant in Denmark where it's trying to design the most high tech, newest digital monitoring pump systems. And then it built a plant in, I believe it was Hungary, in order to build just its kind of more standard version. So it's kind of what you say, right? The standardized stuff that can be offshored, but then it turns out for a lot of these firms where, again, it's about the knowledge, it's about pushing that technology frontier forward, that remains in the domestic market. And you see they, they actually hire more technology-related workers. You see their R&D expenditures go up. And again, it looks like they are making the higher quality versions at home. And this kind of lines up with something we've seen in the U.S. data where we've actually linked the um, Bureau of Economic Analysis has multinational data, uh, yes. all about the activities of U.S. firms abroad. And, and then we've linked that to the census data that has the detailed firm establishment level information for all the U.S. establishments. And so what we see there is that actually the vast majority of firms, U.S. multinationals that have foreign manufacturing affiliates continue to have some U.S. manufacturing employment. They have at least one uh, U.S. manufacturing establishment. There's very little aggregate activity and very few firms that have foreign manufacturing affiliates and don't have domestic plants. And that to me, again, fits with this story that manufacturers can do take advantage of these low wage locations, but at least for the United States, for developed countries where our comparative advantage is the knowledge and the innovation, we see that they still continue to manufacture some in the United States. Yeah, I think uh, this is uh, sort of related. You have another paper, co-location of production and innovation, evidence from the United States. You say manufacturing manufacturers perform the majority of U.S. patenting and R&D, uh, the decades-long decline of U.S. manufacturing employment uh, raises concerns that U.S. innovation will falter. Uh, you say we investigate the relationship between physical production and innovation by constructing a new data set um, linking all U.S. firms and their establishments uh, to uh, location, geocodes, and innovative activities. So this is sort of related, right? I mean. The, we, we, this is what we typically see, um, the high-end R&D, um, the, the sort of the, the high-end operating system development, artificial intelligence and so on, uh, are all done, done here. 
And as things get more standardizable, they they appear to be more uh, more amenable to outsourcing. I guess right. That that's what you're seeing in the data. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say that paper is still somewhat preliminary, but I can tell you what our initial findings are. So you know what we approached the question with was everybody or we often hear policymakers say we need to have more U.S. manufacturing. It's really important to have U.S. manufacturing. And as an economist, I would like to know why. Why is it important? Is it because we care? We think those people can only have jobs in manufacturing. Could they have jobs in other sectors? Right. That's what we were talking about earlier. Well, one of the arguments that people make is, well, you have to manufacture in order to innovate. And so we thought, OK, is that true? Is that what we see in the data? And so to, to look at that, we linked up all of U.S. Uh, firms patents to their all their U.S. establishment locations and also to their import um, import importing uh, decisions. And so I, I would say that we're still understanding those results because they kind of go in, in two directions. On the one hand, we do find that firms that have within the United States, both manufacturing and innovation related plants like an R&D lab, when they have those and moreover, when they have those close to each other, so within about five miles, they patent more than other firms. They also patent more in the time periods in which they have both those plants and they're co-located. We also look in terms of the geography and we see that that's where most of their patents or the majority of their patents, they patent more in those places in which they have the co-located R&D and manufacturing. So that suggests that there is an important um, role for co-location of, of R&D and manufacturing. But there's a big caveat here. We also find that there's some firms that leave manufacturing entirely. They drop all their US manufacturing establishments. And there's particularly, it looks like firms that do this right around China's WTO accession over that 2001 period, those firms were patenting before they dropped all their U.S. manufacturing plants, their imports, and in particular, their imports from China grow dramatically and their patenting continues to grow. So it looks like there is a subset of firms. I'm going to call them factoryless goods producers. These are firms that are often involved in the design and the coordination of the production process like Apple, but they don't own any of their own manufacturing like Apple. Just an example, not saying they're in the data. So, you know, there's some firms that seem to be able to just fully outsource manufacturing and offshore a lot of it and still continue to innovate. And so that's, I think, what we're trying to study is why can some firms, is it an industry specific phenomenon? What is it that allows that separation to occur for, for some, but not for the majority? Yeah. I wonder, Teresa, so uh, from a policy perspective, you know, the politicians need all 175, 180 million people to come and vote for them. And in a country where uh, the, the skills are very sort of bifurcated, um, you know, we have uh, a very large population who have maybe just high school education or even less than high school education. Um, really uh, sort of looking for manufacturing type jobs. And so I think what the politicians are saying is that, yeah, yeah, we have to have manufacturing here because I have to get elected. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that even when we have tried to do things like, let's say, have really high steel tariffs. So far, what the research has shown is that a number or a large portion of those Trump tariffs were on from on inputs as opposed to final goods. Those those seem to have hurt U.S. manufacturing firms. So there's one paper that finds that um, firms that faced higher tariffs on their inputs saw relatively bigger um, or saw relative declines in their employment. So it actually seemed the same like the tariffs hurt firms that are using those as inputs. And then I don't think that they found much evidence of increased employment in those sectors that got protected. And so I think, you know, why, why might that be? We'll think about steel. The way steel is manufactured today is much more technology intensive. So we raised the price of steel in the U.S. with the tariff. It did not necessarily translate into more steel manufacturing jobs. Um, and I also think, you know, we, we we've seen like in automobile manufacturing, there's actually been a lot of foreign firms who've come and located in the United States. I mean, 
cars are big and expensive to transport, so there's a, a benefit to being closed. And um, in some cases, we, we have tariffs that motivate firms as well. Um, but even in those cases, many of the jobs that were they traditionally were around Detroit, right, those were very high wage union jobs, those actually, now we, we see a lot of car manufacturers open in the South. So even within the United States, you saw kind of competition in terms of wages and in terms of just the business environment and right to work as opposed to, um, you know, more unionized places. We saw that kind of competition, I think, erode some of what you're talking about as those secure jobs. Um, and I think that's going to continue to be true. Firms are always going to be looking for a cheaper way to do things, whether if labor is too expensive, they're going to look for technologies, they're going to look for trade, right? I mean, that's kind of the good thing about the market is, is we're firms are always driven to profit maximize and, and cut costs. And of course, we want to make sure that workers are also treated fairly and, and, and have access to the best opportunities. And I think then the question is, what's the way, what's the most effective way to, to do that? And is it by trying to keep prices high on the goods that they make, or is it better to focus on the skills um, and, and flexibility that they have, right? So, you know, we talked, to, I, I told you Canada did really well. Well, Canada, they don't call it unemployment insurance, they call it employment insurance. And you have a much higher fraction of the population that uses that system. The US is, is like very low until COVID. COVID actually seems to have changed that some, I think, there's going to be some interesting lessons we might get out of COVID. Like, do we see, ha, have we seen more workers change industries? I think we have. We've seen workers acquire new skills. We've seen them try to really change from, let's say, the services, you know, restaurants industry into other uh, jobs or sectors where they had the time and they had the resources to be able to invest in some kind of um, new skill set that gave them that new opportunity. Yeah. So, so what you're saying, Claire, is if I understand correctly, that it's sort of an unavoidable thing. So as long as um, labor cost and skills differentials exist across different countries, um, just comparative advantages are going to drive firms uh, in that direction to, to trade, right? And so the, the policy question is, it, there is a huge upskilling requirement it seems to be for the U.S. population, right? And so the question would be, how how do we upskill a very large population? Yeah, so that's a great question. Let me just come back a second to what you said. I, I will say about, you know, it's comparative advantages there, but even if you said, I'm going to try to block that with tariffs, I'm going to protect my country with tariffs, what we have to recognize is U.S. firms don't only want to sell in the U.S. They want to compete in the global market. If they want to compete in the global market, they have to compete with lower priced competitors who if, if those firms have access to cheaper inputs and labor. And so when we put high tariffs, we also affect our firm's competitiveness. We lower their ability to export and, and do um, certain FDI activities. And so in that place, the firms are going to be looking for another way to lower their costs. And if they can't do it with imports, they're going to figure out a way to do it with technology instead. So those driving forces are there. It's going to be very hard unless you wanted to just be, you know, completely closed off to the rest of the world. And, and those experiments, when countries have tried that, haven't worked out well. Think of, you know, China or Japan um, for hundreds of years. And so, you know, I think it's more than just trade, it's that if there's countries out there with lower costs, we want to be able to compete with them, not only in our country, but elsewhere, right? The, the rest the U.S. is a big economy, but the world is a lot bigger. Um, and then I think to your question about how do we upgrade skills? You know, I had a really interesting visit at the Boeing factory in South Carolina, where um, they described a lot of how Boeing teamed up with the local governments in order to set up programs in the community colleges and then also in the flagship university to help with the kind of skills and training that Boeing would need. And in some cases, it was more like, um, you know, a way to see, well, this person, it's not that the community college is giving them the skills they need to work for us, but they're helping us see this person knows how to learn, is committed to learning, and we can train this person. And so then they will hire them. And so I think that if if we could have more partnerships between local and state governments and 
the education that they provide and then with uh, firms, businesses, I, I really think that would be beneficial both for firms and workers. Because right now it does seem like there's a bit of a market failure in terms of there's a lot of firms who want to hire and they can't find they can't find people. And there's people who presumably want jobs. And why are we doing a, a better job as a society of matching those up? Yeah, I also wondered, I mean, it, this is uh, not easily implemented, but the, the skills differentials also exist because of sort of location friction, right? So if you have open borders, um, skills will distribute themselves, wherever the skills could be utilized. The US-Canada could be a good sort of an experiment. But if US and Canada had open borders, how, you know, what would we see in terms of specialization? I mean, I think the spatial frictions is a really interesting question. So one open question in trade uh, research is why didn't more people move after the what we call the China shock? Imports from China came in. You had towns where the factory shut down. People lost their job. And then because they had lost their job at the main factory, the restaurants and the other things kind of shut down. And we have seen a lot of people move out of rural areas, but we really didn't see a lot of movement initially. And so, you know, think you've got this town in North Dakota that's booming with this oil uh, oil boom, and they're trying to pay people to move there. And then you've got a place where people just can't move. And I think it's really hard to move when you've lost your job. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know where you're going to go. And so I also think, and, and local governments don't have an incentive to get people to move. They want to keep people there. They certainly don't want to give them skills that will help them go move, get a job somewhere else. And so I think we need to consider the possibility of, say, within the United States, some randomized control trials, sort of similar to what has been done by some economists in, in settings like Bangladesh. Like, if you help people with information or with some money, right, so that they can afford to move and go look somewhere else for a job, will that actually also reduce the frictions to allow people to reallocate? Yeah, the, the international movements, um, there, there's language, there's culture, there are all sorts of complications, right? Um, but as you say, even in the US, I, I think we see less and less people moving, right? Uh, if you look at longitudinally, and that, that's sort of puzzling, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's some debate about this using different data sources, and then whether or not you're talking about general moving or moving for employment reasons, like, um, you know, to search for new jobs. And so uh, I'm not as much of an expert on on people and, and their movement. So I'll I'll just I'll just come back to what I know is true, which is we really didn't see a lot of movement in response to the big employment losses from from China in certain areas. They seem to be spatially concentrated. They were Across the U.S. as a whole, not much, but in certain labor markets, it was very intense. And why didn't we see more people move in response to that? That's a puzzle, and it suggests potential policies, uh, a potential role for policy to help people, um, you know, adapt in response to changes in trade and technology. Yeah, and, and it's very, um, very um, different in different parts of the country. I think the Northeast is losing people, um, and I believe the Southwest is gaining some. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the small number of people are moving. And so there is also flow, differential flow across the country um, for whatever reason. But it, it's interesting that, you know, if you think about California, it's not a very cheap place to live. And so the, the movements that we see uh, I don't know if it is for employment. Uh, I, I don't quite understand it. It's quite puzzling um, what's happening. You mean why people move to California? Why people move to California, yeah. Well, it's sunny and warm. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, I can see retirement uh, possibilities, but if you, are, if you are employed and, you know, you need to live somewhere, and I'm thinking Silicon Valley specifically. I mean, you, you can get a little uh, cardboard box for a million dollars in Silicon Valley. Uh, so but, I mean, those the the jobs there also pay very well. So, 
That is true, yeah. So, so I want to uh, finish up with your 2021 paper. I don't know if it is published or not, that uh, so the heterogeneous globalization, offshoring and reorganization. So you say the paper exploits a unique offshoring survey to show that firms continue domestic production of the same goods they offshore. So we talked, uh, we talked a bit about this. Uh, the shift towards uh, produced good imports coincides with the reallocation of labor, labor from physical production to innovation and technology occupations. So one thing that I have heard long time ago is that firms keep some, even if they are outsource something, they keep it internally because they're afraid they will lose the expertise. So if I am Apple and I outsource one component of an iPhone to all South Korea firms, and then at some point, all those firms can hold Apple uh, <laughs> on the gunpoint, say, you know, if Apple cannot make that anymore, right? So this is more of a laboratory, keep the, keep the experience and, and knowledge um, internally, even though they're not manufacturing it in large scale, right? Um, yeah, I think, you know, here I really like the example I talked about earlier about the pump manufacturer who I think for certain things, when you're trying to push the technology frontier out, when you're trying to come up with improvements in your product, sort of think about it in a vertical space, um, I think that seems like it's important to have that be where you, your innovation workers and your production workers are proximate to each other. Um, and then I think with Apple, you know, I, I was told a story by a reporter that Apple actually has facilities in California where it has every single um, machine that's on the factory floor in Foxconn. It has all of those. Um, where the engineers can go and they can test out the new product design that they have, see if it's going to work in terms of production. Um, but, you know, to your point about losing, well, there's losing the capability. And then there's also the concern that, you know, the idea will be stolen by, by a, a supplier that's not in the firm. Um, I think there, there's some research showing that, for example, IP protection, intellectual property protection laws matter much more to firms, to U.S. multinationals, when they're in industries that have long product life cycles as opposed to shorter product life cycles. And so you can think about that. You know, the Apple's always coming up with a new phone. And so it's if it's not too worried that a competitor could <coughs> come along and also come, you know, steal that backwards induct or backwards engineer that new idea quickly, it doesn't matter because by the time someone can copy them, <coughs> that um, product will be outdated. You can get the next version, next version of the product. Yeah, the, the counter example would be, as you say, is pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, a really long R&D process, 10 to 15 years, and there isn't a lot um, that, that gets outsourced from, you know, sort of the late R&D process. Uh, because of IP issues, uh, mostly, I would think. Um, and so, so you've done a lot of work in this area, Teresa. So, if you take all of all of what you have done here, um, in conclusion, what would be one or two kind of important policy direction from a U.S. perspective? I guess I think a number one important policy perspective is to remember there's two sides to this coin. So. You know, trade economists or some economists have shown that imports from China led some workers to lose their jobs. Those are easier to see than the fact that those imports from China also led to new jobs in other sectors. And particularly, it looks like to the U.S. moving towards its comparative advantage activities in R&D and knowledge and business services types of activities. And so I would always urge people to ask themselves, look, yes, we, we need to care about the textile or the furniture manufacturers who lost their jobs, and we need to figure out how to help them be able to transition in response to um, increased competition for, for their products from China. We also need to remember that things like the iPhone, that a lot of these new technologies, that there's a lot of U.S. firms who took advantage of that low-cost production, 
location in order to expand the products, the set of goods that they could bring to market, because it would not have been feasible to do if we'd had to rely only on U.S. labor. And so I think we want to remember there's two sides to that coin. And to the extent that, as you said before, there's just forces that are going to push us towards it's cheaper to make things in China than it is in the U.S. We could try to keep it expensive in the U.S., but then we're not going to have U.S. firms that can compete in a global marketplace. We are going to stagnate. We're not going to have the kind of reallocation that has made that may, leads to productivity growth that leads to, you know, us generate, you know, getting doing better off over time. So I, I think that's my main. Yeah, if you come out today, so, you know, from a welfare perspective, we could even pay um, people who lose the job, lose their jobs for because of because of free trade. I'm thinking, you know, a guaranteed minimum um, payment or whatever. Where do you come out on, you know, that type of a policy? I mean, I guess I think that, and this is not so much based on my research as an economist, it's just based on um, my experience as a human. I think that there is something really important about people feeling that they can take care of themselves and that they are valued and that they are valuable. And I think that there is always... Um, a role for everybody. And it's up to us to figure out, to be just as ingenuitive with how we take advantage of all of the innate qualities and abilities that people have in order to allow everybody to contribute. So I'm not necessarily, I, my sense is I don't think a lot of those people necessarily want handouts. I think what they want is to be proud of themselves and to have uh, work opportunities. And I think that we have to figure out a system, right, that will allow them to do that. Well, it will allow them, encourage them either to move physically, to move sectors, to develop those skills. Um, and I think, again, if we had a much more clear path where you could see where what the jobs are and what the skills are that you need to get those jobs, I think that would already that information would be very helpful to people. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of the minimum guaranteed income is that it's essentially an investment. So the individual can take that and invest in skills, upgrades. Um, maybe there are things that individuals wanted to do, they could never get to do them. So so, so I don't know if, if, it is, if it is negative in the sense that people say it's a handout, I would rather work. I look at this more like an investment in the individual. Yeah, I think, I, I guess you, I guess I think if just if you were to give people that sort of investment opportunity now, the, the system is still missing ingredients for people to see how to invest and how that leads to a path forward. And so kind of, However, we're going to arrange to give people the resources they need to take advantage of a, a new path. That new path still, we are missing certain uh, stepping stones for folks, right? From high school. In high school, how often do we have employers coming and saying, hey, listen, I need you to know geometry if you want to come work for me in this and be able to run the CAD software? You know, so I think there just needs to be a more clear path for people in terms of the skills that we teach in high school. Why are we teaching trigonometry? We should be teaching statistics. Everybody should have a basic sense of, of data. Um, you know, that's kind of what I mean. So even if you just gave people basic income, I, I don't think it's going to solve that sort of hole that we have. Yeah, we, we, we may have to head back and uh, start building pyramids at some point. So trigonometry might be important. Maybe. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Teresa. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it was great to chat. Thank you. <coughs> Teresa, if you're, if you're still on, um, you can hang up. I'll, I'll just stop the recording.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.